Okay, you can find your way back to a seat. this time in our service, we give our attention to God's word. We believe that the Bible, the scriptures, is God's word to us by which he has revealed who he is and how we are to respond and live in light of who he is. Nate will come and read the scriptures for us, and then we'll preach from them together. Morning. This morning we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. And I would tell you the page if I hadn't lost it on my way up here. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word of the Lord. When I was a kid, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Richard and Sabina Wombrandt. I have no idea if those names mean anything to you. They didn't mean anything to me at the time. Later. I learned that these were sort of legends in Christendom, sort of living legends. Richard Wombrand was a pastor during World War II, and he was a Jewish convert who became a pastor, and during his faith, he, he went through incredible persecution for being a Christian in communist Romania. He was imprisoned for about 14 years, and he wrote a number of works about his experience. His most famous one was this book called Tortured for Christ. It became this global sensation as he recounted with detail the different things that he endured because of his faith in Christ. He and his wife, Sabina Wombrand, were both persecuted. They ended up starting an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which exists even today and helps those who are persecuted the world over. I remember meeting this godly couple, and then afterwards when I was reading this book, even as a young boy, I was just amazed at the different things that they went through for Christ. He had spent... 14 years in prison, three of those in solitary confinement with a cell that was built many feet underground, complete darkness, no windows, no lights. Even the guards would wear socks 
so that there would be no sounds in the jail cell. And in complete darkness, with no noise, he, he describes how he almost went insane, and yet God kept him sane through all those years. I could tell you one story after another, but, but let me give you one account of this incredible couple. Richard Wimbrand tells a story of being in his apartment one day when his landlord came in and had this sort of look of terror on his face. And the landlord said that he had a guest, a friend who had come to stay with him, except this former friend had now become a completely different man. He was once a good man, and now he described him as just this cold-blooded murderer. This friend had joined up with the Communist Party and now had turned into this cold-hearted man and was boasting about how many thousands of Jews he had killed. Richard Wimbrand met this man and invited this man into his home. Let me read you the account of the exchange between these two. He says, I stopped and turned to Barilla. Barilla was this man's name. And I said, I have something very important to say to you. Please speak, he said. If you look through that curtain, you can see someone is asleep in that next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you had killed hundreds of Jews near Golta, and that is where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know who you have shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of my wife's family. Barilla jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me, and I held up my hand and I said, now let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife and tell her who you are and what you have done, and I will tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She will embrace you as if you were her brother, she will bring you supper and the very best thing she has in the house. Richard Wimbrand went on to say, Now if Sabina, who is a sinner like all of us, can forgive and love like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect in love, can forgive and love you. Only turn now to him, and everything you have done will be forgiven. Barilla, he writes, was not heartless. Within he was consumed by guilt and misery at what he had done and one tap at his weak spot and his defenses crumbled. His reaction was amazing. He jumped up and tore at his collar with both hands so that his shirt was ripped apart. Oh God, what shall I do? What shall I do? He cried. He put his head in his hands and sobbed noisily as he rocked himself back and forth. I'm a murderer, I'm soaked in blood, what shall I do? And tears ran down his cheeks. I cried out, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command the devil of hatred to go out of your soul. And Barilla fell on his knees, trembling, and we began to pray aloud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness and said that he had hoped and knew that it would be granted. We were on our knees together for some time. Then we stood up and embraced each other. And then I said, I promise to make an experiment I shall keep my word. I went into the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at the time. I woke her gently and said, there is a man here whom you must meet. We believe he has murdered your family, but he has repented and now he is our brother. And then he ends by saying this, 
She came out in her dressing gown, and she put out her arms to embrace him. Then both began to weep and to kiss each other again and again. I have never seen bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then, as I foretold, Sabina went to the kitchen to bring him food. I met that couple, right? Um, incredible, godly. I, I don't know what it's like when you hear stories like that. For me, when I hear stories like that, they seem so out of, out of the normal that you almost have to relegate them to fiction. But I, I'm telling you, I met the couple, so I know that they're real. And so then when you hear stories like that, it does something to you, like, like it humbles you because you begin to realize this woman, without a long time, instantly forgave the man who murdered her family. And then you begin to realize, I harbor hatred for so much less. I harbor hatred towards people for so much less and will not let it go. It humbles you. Another thing it does is it, it makes you ask questions like, how is that even possible? Right? What resources did that couple, that Christian couple have that I don't have? What did they know about Christianity or experience about Christianity or believe about Jesus and this gospel that I just don't get? What do they see that I must not be seeing that they could do that? What must they have experienced or come to know? Or, or if nothing else, maybe it at least confirms to you this sort of suspicion you've always had, which is that in Christianity, you've got varsity and JV, right? You've got varsity Christians like Richard and Sabina Wombrand, and then you've got the rest of us. If you went to the Apostle John, I honestly don't think he would divide up Christians into varsity and JV. In fact, as we've read through the Apostle's letter, the only division we keep hearing him say is there are authentic Christians and there's counterfeits. That's the only two. There are authentic Christians who see it, who know it, who believe it, who get it, who live it, and then there are those who don't. And I think if you ask John, John would say, this example and every example of love and forgiveness this example and every example of forsaking hatred and embracing love is not the exception for a, an elite few. It's the expectation of everybody. It's what's expected of all authentic Christians. That authentic Christians are those who love one another, who forsake hatred and who embrace love, who love one another as Jesus loved them. If, if John were asked, John would say, authentic Christians cannot possibly claim to love Christ and hate one another. And John particularly is going to focus today on brothers and sisters. John would say, you cannot claim to love Christ and hate Christians. It, it just cannot be. Authentic Christians are those, John will insist, who love one another, who forsake, who have no room for hatred within their world view. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to pick up where we left off in 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 7 to 14. So if you've got a Bible, if you don't have one, there's one under your seat. You can keep that one. 
1 John 2, verses 7 to 14, we'll pick up where we went from last week. And, and what John's been helping, as you turn there, what John's been helping us with throughout his letter is to help us examine, are we authentic Christians? And what John's been doing is sort of giving us one test after another to help us answer that question. If you were here last week, John gave us sort of a moral test or the behavior test. Is how you're living consistent with what you are claiming? And last week we said that obedience is the evidence that you know God. This week, John is going to administer to us another test. It's the social test or the relationship test. And John's question for us is going to be, do you love one another, giving evidence that you have come to know the love of God, or do you hate one another, giving evidence to the fact that you don't know God? Have you come to love your brothers and sisters, giving evidence to the fact that you know Jesus, or is there hatred in you, giving evidence to the fact that you don't know him? John will help us in verses 7 onwards. Let me pray for a moment, and then we'll consider verses 7 onwards together. Lord, we pause just to say, help us now as we consider your word. Open your word to us. We even ask that the Holy Spirit would be like a skilled marksman today. And I pray that he would have a laser on our hearts and show us things buried there that we may not even want to unearth. I pray that he would even bring faces to our mind that you want us to deal with even this day and that your word might finally and fully set us free to live in the light as Jesus is in the light. I pray that you would do a great work in me that I might be free to say all that you want me to say and constrained to say nothing more, and in your people to do all that you want them to do. Pray that they would put their arms over their hearts down and let your word come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, this is what it says. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Let's pause there. This is how he starts. John's going to start talking about this commandment, this commandment to love one another or love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, of course, tells this story about the Good Samaritan. And the basic point of his story is when you're asking who's the neighbor that I'm supposed to love, Jesus is going to expand that to say everybody. Everybody you're in a position to help is your neighbor. Who are you called to love? Everybody you can love. So Jesus is going to take this commandment of love your neighbor as yourself, call you to love everyone. And John's going to say, beloved, I'm writing to you. No new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Here's what John's saying. This commandment to love one another, this is not new. This is old. This is very old. And John's trying to say this as an encouragement to his church to tell them, listen, as I'm telling you about authentic Christianity, it's not like I've got something hidden and secret, something about Christianity you don't know. It's not like there's something that you're going to hear, even in this sermon, that you're going to go, oh, I never knew God wanted us to love one another. John's point to them is everything about authentic Christianity you have access to. It's not like these other religions and worldviews where it's this secret hidden wisdom that this elite club of a few people get into. If you know the right password or the secret handshake, you get in. No, this is accessible to all. It's an old commandment. It's something you've already heard and known. I'm not telling you anything new, John wants to say. I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old one. 
In fact, John's trying to say, look, this command to love one another, this is not in this half of the Bible. This comes from this half of the Bible. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, that's in Leviticus 19. So we're in 1 John, we're in this half. There's only a few more pages till the end of the cover. But John's saying this command comes from the other side all the way back from Leviticus 19. Between these pages is 4,000 years. This command I'm giving you to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself, is old. It's at least 4,000 years old. John goes on to say, and you've heard it already from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of their Christian experience. From the beginning of you becoming a Christian, loving God and loving people was a part of the package. He goes on to say, you've heard this. And what he's trying to get them to see is, when I tell you love God and love people, don't hate, none of you are going to go, I never knew that was a part of the Christian faith. No, this is an old commandment. Leviticus 19 old, 4,000 years old, baby steps of Christianity, beginning of your walk old. And just as soon as he gets us to realize how old this command is, with, with the very next verse, it almost seems like John completely contradicts himself. Look at what he says in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Did you hear that? So verse 7, he labors this point. This is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment that I'm telling you. And then with the next verse, in verse 8, he goes, wait, at the same time, it is a new commandment. And you want to go, John, which is it? Remember I told you John was close to 90 years old and you feel like it's starting to seep through and maybe John's sort of forgetting where he is. He's just said this is an old commandment, not a new one. And now he goes, at the same time, it is a new commandment. So John, which is it? Is it, is it old or is it new? And, and John's saying, look, this command to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another, to have no hatred in your heart, it's old, as old as Leviticus. And yet there's a newness to it, verse 8, in him. Who's the him? Who's the him that has made this old command new? If you didn't grow up in church, anytime a preacher asks a question, the answer is Jesus. So you just say Jesus, and 99% of the time you're right, right? The him is Jesus. John's saying this command to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another, to have no hatred, that's always been around, but it, it was never seen like it's been seen in light of him. We always had Leviticus, but we didn't always have him. And once he came, and remember 1 John 1 verse 1 is, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him with our own ears, with our own hands, with our own eyes. Once we saw him, he changed everything, even how we saw this command to love. In fact, love even itself has never been the same in light of him. This command at the same time, verse 8, is new, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is saying, in light of Jesus, we now see what loving one another means in an entirely new light, like we've never understood it before. Everyone knew in the system of the old world that you were supposed to love. That, that's not original. In fact, that's not even uniquely Christian. I want you to hear that. You go to any worldview any major religion, and they're going to tell you to love. That's not uniquely Christian. 
And, and John's saying, we knew that. We, we always knew that. Like, everyone knows that. And yet what is uniquely Christian is him. Because what he did and who he is and how he showed us what love is changed its definition and made it unique for us in a way that no one else in the world has ever seen it or demonstrated it before. You want to know what love looks like? John would say, you got to stare at Jesus. Let, let me tell you what Jesus did for love. Jesus, in love, perfectly obeyed his father. He perfectly loved God, right? Last week we said obedience is the evidence that you love God. If you love God, you will obey him, Jesus said. Well, Jesus was perfectly obedient. He evidenced that he perfectly loved God. And what did Jesus get for his perfect love and obedience? God crushed him and destroyed him and broke him and tore him apart and left him to die and abandoned him. And why? And of course, if you've been an authentic Christian, you know the answer is for us. For us. That's what Romans 5 says. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one else in the world, no worldview had ever seen anything like that before. In fact, Romans 5 even says, for a good person, someone might die. For a loved one, someone might die. But God does something unthinkable. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while he had every reason to hate us, Jesus died for the ones whom he should hate. Jesus took the ones whom he should hate and died for them. And and revolutionized and redefined what love for one another looked like. And, and Jesus is the only one for us. If you think about it, God sort of made a pact with all of humanity, which was, if you love me and obey me, I'll let you live. And yet Jesus was the only one for whom he said, if you love me and obey me, I will kill you. You think of that. For everyone else in the world, the offer is love me and obey me and you will have life. Jesus is the one to whom God says, love me and obey me and I promise you death. For what? For us. You'll come to communion in a few minutes. When you do, when you take the bread and the cup, you've got to hear Jesus scream through those elements again. Why God? Why'd you leave me to die? Why'd you abandon me on the cross? I obeyed perfectly. I loved rightly. I loved those who hated. I loved them. You've got to hear him scream, why, God, why? And of course, you know the answer that these elements scream is for you. For you, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And what John's saying is, in light of him and what he has done, this old commandment takes on this new shape of, of not only how we're supposed to treat those who are good to us, we see in Jesus how we're to treat those who are against us. Because we were against Jesus and we see how he treated us. John says in verse 8, though, this new reality is new in him. But look also at verse 8. It says, in the same breath and in you. This new understanding of love and practice of love is new in him and in you. He goes on to say, because the darkness is passing away and the true light 
is already shining. He's saying this new way of living is not just true for Jesus, it's true for you. It's got to be realized in you because the darkness is already passing away and the true light is already shining. Here's what that means. If you're an authentic Christian, you don't get to play by the old world's rules anymore. You don't get to do that. You're in a new domain. You're in a new era. The light has already started shining. The darkness is passing away. You belong now to the light. You can't live like you lived in the darkness anymore. Jesus has started something new, and it's like the darkness is being drifted away, and the light is starting to shine. Here's what that means. Let me try and explain that. In a sense, what John is saying is Jesus has ushered in an era that is here, but also is still coming. The lights come. It, it, it was here in Jesus, but, but it's not fully light everywhere. There's still darkness, and it's passing away. It's, as theologians would say, that it's, it's already, but it's not yet. So the reality's here, but it's not fully here. It's sort of coming. It's almost like the sun is beginning to shine, and the rays are beginning to fill the land, but it's not fully light yet. Or, or if I were to give you an example, it'd be like if you've ever thrown a surprise party. If you've thrown a surprise party, everyone's sort of waiting in the room, and everyone's loud and chatting it up. And everyone, the lights are on, everyone's acting like it's no big deal. And then someone will shout, he's here. And then what happens? Everyone assumes this certain posture. Now, he's not exactly here. He's still at the driveway, right? But he's walking here, right? And, and in a sense, everyone knows he's here, but he's not fully here. He's arrived, but he's still arriving. And as he gets closer and closer, the posture of the room changes more and more until the door is thrown open and he's finally arrived. But that whole segment of time is he's arrived and still arriving. And the implications of his arrival have come, but they're still coming. And they won't fully be realized till he's fully here. And John's saying, Jesus Christ has come, the light has come, and it's coming. And so you live in this realm where the implications of who he is and what he's done has already begun to burst into your life. You can't live anymore like you have entitlement to hatred. You're done with that. You, you don't have a right to it anymore. The old world you did, you don't have a right if you've seen Jesus to hatred anymore because he loved you when he should have hated you. He, he died for you when he had every reason to abhor you. And so you, you can't live that out anymore. In light of Jesus, this old command takes new realities and those realities have to begin to play out in you. And John wants to show you how this plays out. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says this, this is how it plays out. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, here's how this plays, this out. Here's how this plays out. If you love one another, if you, if you give yourself no allowance for hatred, 
because you've experienced Jesus' love in your hatred, then you are walking in the light and there's nothing to trip you up or make you stumble. But if you say that you are in the light and you hate your brother, you hate the one for whom Jesus Christ has already died. Now, I'm not saying you don't have reason. I'm not saying you don't have wounds. I'm not saying you don't have hurts. But I am saying Jesus was hurt for those hurts. And he was wounded for those wounds. And you will either find satisfaction in knowing he was wounded for even those sins, or you will continue to go on demanding that that person be wounded still. You will either accept the sacrifice of Jesus as sufficient, or you will say it wasn't enough. Even Jesus' blood and death wasn't enough for what was done to me. If you say that you are in the light, but you have hatred in your heart for your brother or sister, John says you're in the darkness and you're, you're blinded. You're not seeing things rightly. You're not seeing things rightly. There's a wives' tale. You can ask one of our 47 doctors. I have no idea if this is true or not. I found it on the internet, so you can see how reliable that is. But the, the wives' tale goes, if you stay in the dark for a long time, eventually your eyes themselves stop working. It's a good illustration whether it's true or not, right? The, the idea would be, look, if, if you're going to live in this thing, eventually it'll knock out your sight. You won't even see right anymore. This anger and hatred you hold on to is so consuming and so blocks your vision of everything else till you can see nothing but that anymore. You don't see anything else right. It's consuming. John says you're in the dark and now you're blind and can't see anything else. This hatred you will not let go of will blind your sight so that you cannot see the light. You can't see in light of what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you've got hatred in your heart, you're not seeing things right, John says. What are you not seeing right? You're not seeing the cross right. You're not seeing your sin right. You're not seeing my innumerable sin put him to death. And he bore all of it and, and gave me what I didn't deserve, mercy and grace. And if I receive that, I cannot hold on to this thing towards another. The cross becomes this compelling reason and this powerful resource to move you from hatred to love. Let me say that again. If you stare at the cross enough, it becomes this compelling reason and this powerful resource to move you from hatred to love. Because as you stare at the cross, you begin to see your own sin and what he did for you. And it weakens your hatred for another. As you begin to see how he's treated you, it moves you and motivates you and gives you the resource by which you can treat another. Here's what John is saying. You cannot say at the same breath, I hate so-and-so. I hope a brick falls on their head. I hope nothing good comes to them. I hope they go to hell. And at the same breath say, Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. And thank you that good will come to my life. And please don't treat me as my sins deserve. And thank you that I'm not going to hell and going to heaven. The two don't work, John says. 
John says, if you have experienced the love of Christ, then it will loosen the hold of hatred in your heart. Last thing, here's what he closes with, 12 to 14. John writes this, not just crossing his fingers, hoping his people will listen. He writes with great confidence in them. Look at verses 12 to 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There's much we could say about it. Let me just say one word, and then we'll close. John's writing this section, wrapping up this, this passage, and what he's doing is he's, he's writing to them. He's got sort of three groups of people, children, young men, and fathers. And, and people have sort of struggled with what it means. We, we think what he's trying to say is, look, he's addressed the church as a whole as children. He's done that a bunch of times. We've said that over and over again. My lo- beloved little children, little children of God, over and over again. And then as he thinks about the church as a whole, he remembers that some of them are older, like fathers. Some of them are younger. And so he addresses each one. But, but his point is this. As I tell you to do this, I'm not sitting here with my fingers crossed, hoping maybe you'll do it. Remember, the point of this whole book is to give comfort to these believers that they really are believers. And so he's writing to them saying, I know your sins are forgiven. I know that you know Christ. I know you've conquered the devil. And so he's telling them, be encouraged. You love Jesus. Jesus loves you. So let the truth of that and the power of that move you to love God and keep his command to love one another. If he was here, or what I want to say to you is, precious Seven Mile Road, believers at Seven Mile Road, even today as I call you to leave hatred and love one another, I'm not even crossing my fingers hoping you listen today. I'm saying to you, you who are believers, your sins have been forgiven. You know God. You've overcome the enemy. The word of God abides in you. I have confidence then that you will do this thing that God calls you to do because you are authentic Christians. Be encouraged. John has every anticipation that they will obey because of who they are. You're real. I know you're real. And so you'll do what God wants you to do. You don't even have to leave here struggling to wonder if you're obey. Commit yourself now saying, I am real. This is God's word. It will happen in my heart. So I want to leave you with this. As the Holy Spirit, even in the rest of this service, ministers to you, ask yourself, is he bringing even now a face to you? Is there a face that as you've been hearing this word from John that has come to the forefront of your mind, a face that the Holy Spirit is saying, if you say you're in the light and you hate your brother, you're in the darkness and you're blind and you cannot see. If there's that face, then allow God to show you again Jesus on the cross until that becomes the face that you see.
and the other one begins to lose its power. Allow the love of Jesus to flood your heart until hatred loses its place and you begin to love your brothers and sisters even as the Lord Jesus has loved you. Authentic Christians, John will say, reject hatred and embrace love for one another as God commands. May the Lord help us to heed his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess if we were to go from here in our own strength, trying to love and rid ourselves of hate, we would have no hope. But even in that first illustration, we hear that what moved this couple to forgive is the thought of what Jesus had forgiven in them. And as they had received much mercy and grace from you, they had the ability to share that grace and mercy with others. Pray now that you would help us to do the same. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do a great work in our heart of both conviction and consolation and comfort. We pray that Jesus would move us from darkness to light and that his cross would give us all the resources we need and all the power we need, for we have no power in ourselves. We pray that we would love one another and the world would know that we are your disciples by our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.